you know? I'm not quite sure how many times I'm going to lie to you <laughs> to, just to clear the air. I'm probably going to continue to blatantly lie to you uh, for as long as I have to work 40 plus hours and um, like raise my children. Uh, so if you don't want to listen to me provide lame excuses as to why I never deliver on the promises that I give you, just skip ahead like a minute or two. I don't know. Um, but here's the thing. Despite my best intentions, because my intentions are pure, I, I really had every plan to release this second part um, like two Fridays ago or however long it's been now. But like something always is just blocking me, uh, which are really in my control. Like um, I forgot that my kid had a, a soccer game. Here comes the cat. The cat hasn't made a sound all day, but she heard me hit the record button. So here she is. Um, anyway, like it's going to sound very BS-y, but in addition to like forgotten sports matches and, um, you know, like an illness popping up or whatever the case may be, I also have really bad luck. Example, I've been focusing on Patreon episodes. Um, I did have one and I just wasn't happy with like the way that the quality was and I'm still kind of learning how to upload those things um you know because you have to do it separately um so anyway I took it off and put it on just like kind of the general feed so lately I've been like I really need to start on that so simultaneously while finishing this one I was starting a Patreon episode and it is one that um a friend of mine had requested that I do a TikTok video on I did it like last year and it's a little bit local to me, um, to us, me and my friend, because, you know, I'm always, like, attracting the Ohio cases. Anyway, uh, long story short, a very large podcast, um, <laughs> like, very well-known, released an episode the other day, and I was like, welp, uh, I won't be doing that. It was obviously the case that I was going to be doing for Patreon. So, um, I will do that at some point in the future, but I have to do a, I gotta go down the list now and, um, just kind of put that one that I had into like a release later file because, you know, that's just my luck. Um, it's not like a super well-known case, but it's a little bit well-known. So I was surprised, like, you've got to be kidding me. <laughs> um, any hoozles, when we last left off, um, we were in 1989, April 29th, 1989, and Robert Sims was frantically jumping up and down, waving his arms, like running out and rushing this police cruiser, uh, asking for roadblocks to be set up because someone had stolen his six-week-old daughter, Heather Lee Sims. And he says, you know, they stole my other daughter, which was 13-day-old Lorelai Marie, three years earlier. Robert has come home from work to find his wife, Paula. Um, she was just one month to the day shy of her 30th birthday, and she's lying on the kitchen floor unconscious. That's how Robert comes in to find her, and he stirs her awake, and she tells him they stole Heather. Um, it, it's happened again. Nothing else was stolen from the home, though. There were no disturbances around the bassinet, no footprints in or outside of the home. Um, it was really just as if a ghost had come in and taken the baby. Um, perhaps a ghost of Brighton past, if you listen to part one. So police have arrived and they're told that Paula was outside taking the trash out around 10.30 p.m. And a man with a gun wearing a dark ski mask forces her inside the house. And he hits her in the back of the head and she falls to the floor where she 
lying unconscious until Robert returned home just before 11.15 p.m. So she was unconscious for about 45 minutes. While the police are inside, they're having a look around, and they can hear Robert calling his sister Linda to break the news that yet another infant daughter of theirs has been kidnapped. But he also tells her, you know what, I need to call my attorney. Um, Weird, maybe, but maybe not. Uh, I mean, this has happened to them once before, and they were suspected. So legal counsel is always a good idea, Uh, yes, even when you're innocent. Um, But something like a bit more weird, though, and I want you to know that I, I acknowledge that there is a cat here. Um, I'm just not going to say anything about it anymore. If you listen to this podcast from the beginning, you you know and love my pets. Anywho, according to Precious Victims, which is the book that I mentioned in episode one, and um, I also said I would include in the show description, but clearly I meant this one. <laughs> so the police are there and they're asking questions and they're trying to get anything that they can from Paula about this masked gunman who abducted her baby. And she looks at Robert and she says, my son's all right, and that's all that matters. Now, like, the house was clear that there was a boy living there. There was boy decor. There was pictures of Randy. Um, like, if you walked into this home, it was very evident that a boy resided here. But there really wasn't much for the girls. Nothing Like, no girly decor, no pictures of the girls. Like, nothing that's standing out. And the police began their questioning, like, do you have any enemies? Do you know anyone who might want to hurt you? Anyone who wants to steal Heather? Because if we remember, in Lorelai's case, Paula had said that a nurse made a concerning comment about wanting to steal the baby. So um, at this time, I don't believe the officers that had arrived um, initially were like making the connection yet. So I don't know if they were asking for that reason. Um, but it it was just kind of like an odd connection between the two. So, um, they're like, no, <laughs> we don't know. We don't know any, um, anyone who would want to do that. And my thought would be like, why, why wouldn't you bring up the nurse? I don't know. Um, so they were adamant that they couldn't think of anyone, but what investigators found strange is that every time they asked Paula for any kind of information about the man, like, a description of him, his clothing, his gun, things like that. It was always met with an I don't know until a suggestion was provided for her. So for example, the officer might say, well, was he about my size? And she would kind of think for a second and then would agree. Or he would say, um, did he, is his gun similar to mine? And she would be like, you know what? Yeah. So it, they were like building this description of this intruder based upon what they were providing. So it was really not helpful for any type of description because they were just making it. She didn't have anything to offer except for what they were feeding to her. Now, during the investigation, authorities began to learn that Paula and Robert did not sleep in the same room after the birth of their daughters. Robert had a perfectly good explanation for this. He told the investigators that he and Randy needed their sleep. You know, his work schedule, he worked nights. He didn't want to be bothered by Paula when she was getting up and down with the babies. So Heather and Paula began sleeping in the living room. Now, three years earlier, she and Lorelai had slept in the basement in the Brighton home. So a pattern here. Like when there's a baby, Paula is not in the marital bed. And I want to... kind of pause here real quick and branch off. I couldn't find anything that 
confidently would allow me to say she slept in the bed when when it was just Randy. It's it's implied um, in a lot of sources. It's um, you know kind of like it's no, it it's known without anybody coming out and saying it when you are reading through stuff. But I don't know for sure. I can't sit here and say, oh, this is the source that I can cite where they said Paula sleeps in bed when it was just Randy. So I just kind of wanted to bring that up. But that is um, what investigators were drawing is that when there were girl babies, she did not sleep in the bed with her husband. I went on a big tangent about this and you're probably like, what's why if you don't know the story, but it'll make sense later on. And it kind of seemed to outsiders that Randy was the golden child. When he was born, there was a nurse from the maternity ward who said that Robert was, like, really attentive to his son. He cried, like, tears of joy, you know. Um, He really wasn't very engaged with the birth of his daughter um, because this same nurse had attended to Paula for both births. And um, she just kind of, the nurse kind of describes both parents as like generally unenthusiastic about the births of their children. But Robert, um, when Randy was born, he refused any photos to be taken. No birth notice in the newspaper, like very private. And the parents asked the hospital staff if the door to the nursery was kept locked. And they gave them very strict instructions that Randy was not to be shown to anyone without one of them present um so they were just very concerned about like his security which would make sense if this is your second child and your first child was kidnapped and later found deceased seemingly because again it was never um well it it was it was confirmed that those were Lorelai's remains but no, there's no 100% way to test that. It was like 97.2% or something that that was Lorelai. So anyway, you know, I, I could understand why you might be like, don't let anybody look at my baby. I don't want anybody to know the pictures thing. Mm, kind of strange, but regardless, um, Robert was just very attentive to Randy. And uh, Randy was actually the first kid to ever attend the Stork Club dinner. This was a dinner that the hospital gave to parents the night before they were going to take their babies home. Um, so <laughs> the staff was like, that's weird. And I just thought it was kind of notable um, that Randy went everywhere. Um, in fact, the day after Heather, Heather's excuse me, kidnapping, which was Sunday, April 30th, according to investigators, they're at the home because they're trying to get information. And Robert and Paula are like feeding Randy and laughing and doting on him as if their daughter was not just kidnapped the day before. To be fair, you know, even when these like traumatic, uh, just chaotic events occur, if you have other children, you still have to kind of maintain the best sense of normalcy that you can. Um, so on one hand, like I kind of see why they might be trying to keep things like normal and light and laughing and loving and stuff for their son. Um, but in combination with all of our other witness statements, <laughs> this is kind of a, a weird thing. 
Now, at this point, the FBI had been assisting in the investigation, and Robert tells Agent, I believe it's Don Schultz, uh, I'm not 100%, so we'll just call him Agent Schultz, that after Heather was taken, he and Paula had, quote, the best and longest lasting sex they'd had in a long time. Um, this was a, like, red flag alert to me. Um, not that I'm any type of expert or anything like that, because uh, I'm not. I'm just an opinionated person who speaks into a microphone. Um, it, like, despite my being a pretty outspoken advocate of, you know, just because people don't cry in public or react appropriately per society's standards doesn't mean they're guilty. Like, you know, that's kind of my stance. I've made that pretty clear time and time again. I have to admit, even I was like, Robert, but what are you saying? Why are you saying that? Um, it's a weird thing to volunteer. This was voluntary information that Robert Sims is giving to this FBI agent. So naturally, they're going to question him further, like, why would you say that? And Robert simply said, well, what are we supposed to do for 24 hours a day? Like, we're comforting each other. And again, I could see that. I I could see that a little bit. Um, but it was weird. It was a weird thing for you to be like, oh, by the way, I just want you to know that um, we smashed and it was great. <laughs> what? So we're going to talk uh, real quickly about a man named Charles Saunders. Um, this was a man who would often go fishing at a spot off of Route 67 near West Alton. It was near these old locks and Lewis and Clark Bridge. So if you're familiar with the area, maybe that set the scene for you. Um, it connected West, I'm sorry, East Alton to St. Louis off to the West. And on May 3rd, 1989, Charles um, was out and he was fishing for like a half hour or so in the evening after work. And when he's getting ready to go home, he's adding STP oil treatment to his vehicle. And he dumps the bottle in and he walks over to the trash can, which was located near the restrooms to toss the bottle away. Um, inside the trash can, he notices a Taco Bell drink cup, an empty pop bottle, and a large black trash bag. Why would one be looking at the trash, uh, you might ask? Like normally, at least for me, I don't know. I just toss things into the trash without really looking. I don't know, but for whatever reason, this man noticed um, a very large bulge protruding from the bag. And I don't know what made him open it up, uh, but we're glad he did sad that he had to find its contents but inside the bag was six week old heather um she was lying faced up her head was tilted to one side and her mouth was open investigators say that she was still pretty pink so if you glanced at her you would just think she was sleeping now identification was made by comparing prints taken from her body to the prints they had on record at the hospital for heather Dr. Mary Case performed Heather's autopsy and found that there were three small vertical cuts on the inside of her lip. She had determined that someone had placed their hand over the baby's nose and mouth, resulting in suffocation. Because of a lack of decomposition externally, she concluded that Heather was suffocated and placed into a freezer face down. Now, this was because um, the color of Heather's face was like this cherry red. And I watched a Forensic Files episode. It was uh, season three, episode six. I jotted it down for you guys. It's called Similar Circumstances. Um, quickly though, when you look this up, I, I think that maybe the old name of Forensic Files, it was like medical something. I can't remember what it is now. 
has it listed at like under a different season or a different episode number. So there might be some confusion. But if you search forensic files first and then that season three, episode six, you should be able to find it. And again, it's called similar circumstances. But in this episode, it explains that lividity is typically purple or dark red in color. And after examining Heather's internal organs, Dr. Case found that there were signs of decomposition beginning, but it was a little bit more advanced than her external composition, or excuse me, decomposition. So because of this, she decides that the baby was frozen for about eight to 12 hours before being placed in the trash can. So investigators go and they break the news to the Simses that a second daughter that had been kidnapped from them was found deceased. And um, you might be shocked to find that investigators claim the couple didn't really react as you might expect grieving parents to. Again, everyone is different. Um, And as I said in the first episode, I'm getting a huge portion of this information from Precious Victims, which was penned by the prosecutor and a journalist. So, you know. Can you, do you want to say hi to the people? You haven't wanted to say anything to me all day. Say hi or go away. You're being rude. Um, so, I think we're going to start over on that. So, investigators break the news to the Simses that a second daughter that had been kidnapped from them was found deceased. And, um, you know... You might be shocked to find that investigators claim that the couple didn't really react as you might expect grieving parents to. Um, Again, everyone is different. Your reaction does not determine your guilt or innocence. Um, And another thing is, as I mentioned in part one, I'm getting the majority of this information from the book Precious Victims, which again was written by the prosecutor in this case and a journalist. So you have to keep that in mind, um, the perspective of which this information. Now, you know, it is information that is on file. It's in police records. So it's verified information, but just keep that in mind. Now, Paula and Randy went to stay at Paula's parents' house. Investigators suggested to Robert that he leave as well because they were going to search the house one last time, like a sweep with dogs. And he was like, nope, I'm staying put, you know, kind of king of my castle type vibe, I guess. So investigators started like really cracking down on Robert and saying, hey, we know Paula did this. And Robert was like, well, you know, now I have to maybe consider maybe she did but she will never talk to you. She's never going to talk to the police again. So I would have to get her to admit it. And I know that you guys still think I had something to do with it, but Paula wouldn't let me go to jail for something I didn't do. These are a lot of question marks (laughs) in uh, like your mental note section, your notes app on your phone. Just imagine like uh, eight question marks because If we remember in part one, his first wife, even though she was like to the very end, like, no, it was me. He didn't do it, but I would have done it anyway. I would have done it for him. Um, I just, I thought it was a strange thing for Robert to say, like, she wouldn't let me go to jail for something that I didn't do. 
which, okay, you know, it's very possible that, that there was no intruder, that this was Paula and she did it on her own and Robert was completely unaware. Um, but just the, the way that he said it, I was like, um, that's a little, like, it's just a little too, you know, it's a little too from the first marriage. It isn't much time uh, after this before he tells Alton Police Sergeant Rick McCain that he was suspicious of Paula's story, uh, but that he believed both deaths of his daughters to be accidental. And in fact, uh, shortly after, by May 5th, Randy was placed into foster care. Now, while investigators are trying to track down Heather's killer, the Simses put their home up for sale on May 16th. Just like in Brighton after Lorelai's disappearance, they never return to their home. So they leave, they go and stay with Paula's parents, and then they list the home for sale. So that's just kind of another, like, a weird, strange thing to a parallel to the first case. While all this is going on, um, an FBI specialist by the name of Dave Attenberger, he was out testing the trash bag that Heather was found in. It was a brand called Curbside, and it was made exclusively for Kmart. Do you guys remember Kmart? I didn't find Kmart until um, later in life, like after I had my children, and now I'm sad because they don't exist here anymore. Uh, so this particular um, trash bag brand, it was being produced in quantities of more than $1 million per day for Kmart. So like... A pretty daunting task um, to compare these bags, but this man compared the edges of the bag that contained Heather's remains to the first unused bag from the Sims's kitchen. Now, it was un—it wasn't possible to match those due to like stretching that had occurred in production. But what he found was a puncture hole in both the bag from Heather and the bag from the kitchen um, that he was testing. And come to find out what caused the puncture hole was debris during the heat sealing process. So it collected during transfer and it caused like this tiny defect in all of the bags in that batch. When the plastic is dyed, it creates these unique striations. Um, forensic files describe them actually as stretch marks in the material. And so the bag from Heather and the first unused bag from the Sims kitchen matched on those like little marks. So they were able to say, oh my God, this bag that we found Heather in absolutely came from the roll that was in their kitchen. Now, Prosecutor Weber... Um, he was like, this is sounding real wonky about your head injury. Um, because Paula, she had said that the man came in and, you know, he forced her inside and then he, um, hit her in the back of the head. And later on, she told investigators that he like karate chopped the back of her neck. Like she made a karate chopping motion with her hand. Um, and Weber's like, I'm going to go talk to Dr. Case the woman who performed Heather's autopsy, because in addition to being the chief medical examiner, she had um, subspecialties. She, um, there's like a couple of different, but one of them was neuropathology. And she was also an expert on shaken baby syndrome. So like 
she's really uh, pretty well versed in many, many areas of um, like the human body. So he's talking to Dr. Case about what Paula has said. And he's like, listen, is this even possible for her to remember a karate chop to the neck? And Dr. Case says, in my professional opinion, like, absolutely not, famo. No. Like, I think her actual words in the episode that I watched were, now that is impossible. But I just like to imagine that people say fun stuff. So I say that here. Um, apparently, as I learned in this episode, what happens when you suffer a traumatic brain injury is the soft tissue of your brain connects with your cranium and that interferes with the outer area of your brain where your memories are kept. So typically people who experience TBIs, traumatic brain injuries, um, and are rendered unconscious, like they don't remember the event itself, but also they don't remember the events leading up to or following the event for several minutes. So if she was knocked unconscious and she was out for 45 minutes, which I believe in another source somewhere, um, Dr. Case said like that even being unconscious for five minutes is like um, pretty bad for your brain. <laughs> so 45 minutes, um, like you could have some damage. I don't know. I didn't look into it. I didn't like, I don't know anything about the brain and oxygen and unconsciousness. Like I'm going to take her word for it though. So, um, like that's a pretty good blow. If you're out that long, you probably had some traumatic injury to your brain. So you're not going to remember right up into the moment that you lose consciousness, you know? Um, so they were like, well, that's, that's real weird. But Paula's parents at this time were away on vacation. So what investigators started to suspect, because they're kind of piecing things together now, they think that Paula um, suffocated Heather and then took her body to her parents' freezer until Paula was ready to dispose of it. But her parents, once they found out that Heather was missing, they wanted to come home early because duh. So Paula was like, oh God, like, what am I going to do? So she goes to her parents' home and brings back Heather's remains to put in her own freezer. Now this was after the Sims' home was searched by police. So it wouldn't have mattered. Um, you know, they were already done there. They weren't going to search anymore. So she could put Heather back in her own freezer until she was ready to go put her wherever she was going to put her. And as we know, three days later, Heather's body was found by Charles Saunders. So Police are like, uh, yeah, <laughs> there's just, lightning doesn't strike twice, you know? Like, this is, we're more and more sure that Paula did this. Now, in the meantime, a roommate um, of Paula's from the hospital from when Heather was born, her name was Stephanie, and she contacted police and came down for an interview, and she explains to them that she and Paula were discussing the delivery of their children. And Paula tells Stephanie, despite having her last two children via C-section, she did deliver her first baby, a daughter named Lorelai, vaginally. And she is described as, like, quote, unemotionally explaining that Lorelai was kidnapped while she was taking out the trash, and a masked gunman hit her in the head. And all he took was the baby and the diaper bag. This story that Paula was telling Stephanie was six weeks before Heather 
was kidnapped in the exact same way. Like, the, she was telling the future, essentially, um, to Stephanie. Now, Stephanie claims that she's not like a news watcher or a newspaper reader. And the reason that she even thought to contact the police was because Stephanie's mother called her and said, do you remember that weird story you told me about your hospital roommate about her kid being kidnapped? Like everything that you told me is exactly how this kidnapped baby, how it went down. Like the taking out the trash and the hitting in the head, like everything that you told me about this woman's child that happened three years ago is happening now. So Stephanie was like, I need to call the police and tell them about this. So she also said that um, Paula was like kind of pissy with her because when Paula was um, filling out her pre-admission paperwork, she had requested a private room, but she didn't get one. So Paula like even told Stephanie like, hey, you should move out. I wanted a private room. And Stephanie was like, no. And then they became pretty friendly. Like there really wasn't an issue. They talked and chatted. But Stephanie um, did say that, you know, she was like, wouldn't it be fun if our kids met later in life and started dating and then they found out that they were born on the same day and our parent, you know, their parents were in the hospital rooms together and all that stuff. And Paula's like, yeah, that'd be neat. Like just real like unemotional, like, yeah be real cool, but I doubt it. Um, like she told Stephanie, like, I, I doubt it were her words. Um, I think she did say it would be neat, but I doubt it. So Stephanie was like, mm-hmm, okay. Um, so she's telling all this to the police and the police are like, what, you know, this is just kind of weird. And she's like, I'm telling you, I don't read the paper. Just like I told you, my mom called me. Um, and they did ask her mom, to verify the story. And she's like, yeah, that's what happened. And Stephanie was like, I'll take a polygraph. Like, I don't have any reason to lie, you know? Um, so the police were like, okay, this is pretty credible. Um, it's kind of a weird thing that she's describing something before it's even happening. And they also talked to the high stands. Now from part one, Dave high stand was a friend of the Sims's and he had driven Robert the rest of the way home when Lorelai was abducted, abducted, excuse me, because remember he's like all hysterical and he couldn't drive. So Dave was like, yeah, I'll take you there. And they also had given statements before that Paula had expressed worry that Lorelai would be kidnapped after she was first born because of the nurse's comments. Now, when Randy was born, um, Robert called the high stands and they were like, oh, Randy's here. Like, do you want to come see him? And they politely declined. Um, they had actually stopped talking to the Simses when Lorelai's body was found. And when Dave found out about Heather, they were like, okay, well, we absolutely cannot explain this because maybe Lorelai was an accident, but you can't have this accident happen twice to the same family. So the Simses were kind of like, they were being, they were on a little island on their own. You know, they didn't have, um, much support. As we remember from part one, Robert was all like, the most important thing is it hurts the most. I don't have support from the community, which was weird. Um, so like now it's happening again. People are realizing these are the same people from three years ago and a couple towns over. Their baby is um, gone again. Now their friends don't really talk to them. So, you know, I imagine during this time they're 
leaning on each other more heavily, I would think. Now, on May 10th, 1989, Heatherly Sims was buried alongside the suspected remains of her sister, Lorelai Marie Sims, who at that time, um, her grave, Lorelai's, was still unmarked, which I found weird. Again, her parents um, had said that they weren't even sure that those, they, they weren't sure that they believed that those were Lorelai's remains. You know, they had hope that she was still out there, alive. Um, regardless, I think I would put something on the marker though. I don't know. It's marked now, but at that time it wasn't. So, um, kind of a quick overall timeline and there is so much more information about, um, like more details and everything that was going on in the book. So, you know, I would definitely recommend picking that up, um, or downloading it or borrowing it from your library or however you might, um, consume books. But if you're interested, um, there's so, so, so much detail that you can learn about. Um, but for this purpose, we're just going to kind of go over high level overview. So on May 12th, so two days after the burial service of Heather, Jersey County authorities, so that was back from the Lorelai's disappearance, they charged Paula with obstruction of justice and concealment of a homicide for allegedly lying to police in 1986. Her father posted her bond and she went free, like no big deal. July 1st, 1989, um, the state attorney, William Hayne at the time, charged Paula with obstruction and concealment for allegedly lying to police about Heather's disappearance and for hiding the infant's body. Um, between the 10th and the 11th of July, Paula's parents, they invoked their fifth amendment right during a grand jury. Um, it was like a questioning of Heather's death and the dumping of her body, but the prosecutors forced her parents to testify by granting them immunity from prosecution. Uh, on July 11th as well, Paula Sims was arrested and held without bail. Um, it was like less than an hour after the grand jury indicted her for first degree murder and Heather's death. Now this charge made her eligible for the death penalty. And on December 14th, 1989, the, uh, Madison County judge, um, don't remember the name, sorry, granted temporary custody of Randy to Robert, but the stipulation was Paula was not allowed to have any contact with her son. So he was in foster care from May to December, but he did go back with Robert. On January 8th, 1990, jury selection began, and um, the trial was moved to Peoria. I think that's how you say it. Peoria. It looks like Peoria, but I'm pretty sure it's Peoria. I don't know. Illinois. Um, because there was so much... <laughs> Well, now I've just screwed it all up. There was so much publicity in the area that they were like, no way can she get a fair trial. So they did end up moving. Now, I'm not going to go into too much of the trial here because, like I said, you can read the book. Um, but I will give you some of the defense testimony. There was a woman named Joy who testified that on May 3rd, 89, um, the day that Heather's body was discovered, she saw like this person in a car parked and she saw a man and he had this bundle and the bundle was wrapped in like this little baby Afghan 
like a little blanket, you know, like those little crocheted things. But the woman um, didn't see what was inside the bundle. And it was like 8.30 in the morning that this happened, but it was like a block away from the bridge, which led to the area where Heather's body was found. So uh, another piece of evidence for the defense was uh, shoe prints. They stated that there were shoe prints found at the area where Heather's body was located, um, and the prints were determined not to match any shoes, any footwear for Paula or Robert or her parents or anybody connected to this case. Um, The prints were found around 9 o'clock on May 3rd, and it was like 40 feet from the trash can where Heather's body was. But the the bundle with the little blanket, it occurred like two to four hours before the body of Heather could have been put into the trash can. And it was almost six miles away from the barrel. So they were like, there's nothing here to link this man um, or these men or this man and this person in this car, man, woman, no, no one's sure about the car, but a man holding the little bundle. There's nothing to link him to Heather. We don't know what was inside of that. It was, you know, miles away. Um, she was found in a trash bag, not a blanket. So all of this, irrelevant. The evidence of the shoe prints, um, they were pretty much like, yeah, the the prints were found 40 feet away from the trash can, but the trash can was only three feet away from the parking lot. Um, so like, no. <laughs> and in addition to that, um, the trash can was like, like I said, near a restroom. So it was in an area where like a lot of people would be walking back and forth. It was a public place, you know, um, there's going to be a lot of shoe prints. And I guess they found evidence that there were other people in that park that day, which I'm sure there were. So there wasn't any evidence that the shoe print was in any way related to somebody else that wasn't Paula or a member of her family placing Heather into the trash can. So that's really like, I mean, there was other things too, like I said, you know, read the book, but um, there just wasn't a whole lot of strong defense. Now, during the trial, Robert did testify on Paula's behalf. Like, he was her biggest supporter until she was found guilty of first-degree murder on January 30th, 1990. Uh, He divorced her just a few months after her conviction and obtained custody of Randy. On February 2nd, jurors recommended life imprisonment as opposed to the death penalty because they had too many questions about Robert's involvement to condemn her to death. Which, same. Uh, Now, you might ask, why did Robert up and divorce his wife that he had so staunchly defended? Like, what happened there? Three months after her conviction, Paula pled guilty to concealment of a homicidal death. In return, prosecutors agreed not to pursue murder charges against her in relation to Lorelai's killing. And it was after this that Paula confessed to the author I mentioned in part one um, in her book, Dying Dreams, and um, she was serving her life sentence at Logan Correctional Center in Lincoln. And Audrey, I think her name's Audrey, but it, last name Becker, Miss Becker, had come to visit her. And um, during those visits, she was like, 
okay, yes, I did kill my girls. Um, but I didn't do it the way that they said. I didn't suffocate them. I was, you know, a lot more um, gentle than that. I just drowned them. I drowned both of them. And, uh, you know, I, I don't really know why I did that. Um, I was like, I, I was mad. She did say that she had thoughts of killing Randy, like when he was crying and stuff, but she was able to stop herself. Wild coincidence. Um, you know, I don't know uh, how that works. If there's a pattern, like if she would have had another baby, is it one every other? I don't know. I don't know. But it is very strange that she had enough self-control not to kill one of her three children, but the only male. Now, um, Paula had a couple of quotes uh, about herself and the murder of her two children. And she says, quote, I can't change that. If someone thinks I'm a monster, I know I'm not. I know I'm a good person and I know I'm being punished for being mentally ill. So she explained that she started hearing voices right after Lorelai was born, um, but she didn't want to talk about much about that. Like she didn't want to talk about the day that Lorelai was killed. She just wanted to say like, yeah, um, I had a mental illness, but I didn't know it at the time. And I heard voices and, you know, all of this is what caused me to commit these heinous acts. Now, maybe it very very possibly could be um but it's it just seems to be a bit convenient um <laughs> it's almost like she could pick and choose you know and she had enough um awareness to hide her crimes again I'm not an expert um I haven't studied anything about the women who commit these crimes um so I it just seems like the ones that have been confirmed to have some type of legitimate postpartum psychosis or what have you like it's really a psychosis they're not like oh I'm I've snapped and I've done this but now I know that I need to go hide everything I don't know um both Robert and Randy remained in the Madison County, Illinois area. It was um, Edwardsville, to be exact, is like where they settled. And they never changed their names. They never moved. But they were devout Christians. Robert told a church member that Jesus had healed and fixed him. On April 20th, 2002, Robert remarried to a woman named uh, Vicki Thomas and Randy went on to become a teacher at Collinsville Christian Academy. The same church member that Robert had told Jesus had fixed him um, said that Robert would visit the Hope Clinic three times a week because Robert did not believe in abortion. And he said that Robert would like gently try to talk women out of going through with the abortion. But he was never aggressive to them, didn't break any laws. And he did all of this despite being treated for cancer. Um, okay. <laughs> Me likes to think that Robert Sims developed into some like kind, gentle soul in his later years rather than harassing women. But I don't know. You tell me if you've ever seen an individual or a group outside of a clinic 
who acted in a gentle manner. Write in. Send me an email. Let me know if you have. Maybe you are one. I'm not sure. Um, I haven't seen too many. But of course, I mostly see these things on the internet. So are there people out there who quietly are protesting um, and not approaching these women? Perhaps. Um, but Robert Sims was a man who used to place used condoms and cockroaches in a woman's sandwich. So <laughs> I personally, um, don't have much faith that he was out at this clinic, like being so sweet, just trying to really help these women. On June 20th, 2015, Robert and Randy were um, on a mission trip in Mississippi, and a drunk driver, 47-year-old Yolanda McNeely, was driving a Volvo, and it clipped the Jeep that Robert and Randy were in, and it caused them to go, like, careening off the highway over this bridge, and they both died. They were both ejected from the vehicle. So, um... I don't want to like speak ill of the dead about Robert, but um, those were things that happened prior to his death. Um, and it is sad, you know, like I think the biggest thing here is Randy, like that's the saddest part of all, um, just having to grow up under kind of that stigma of your mom and not having your mom and then who knows what Robert was like. Um, and I haven't like really talked a whole lot about Robert's, um, ways. <laughs> and, uh, of course a lot of it is coming from Paula. Um, like he had a lot of rules. He was very controlling, things like that. So, um, there's more details, like I said, in the book, but, um, <sighs> everyone that knew Randy said that he was like a wonderful person. Um, you know, it seemed that he grew up and was pretty well adjusted according to his friends, um, people who talked about him after his passing. Um, now once he passed away, uh, in 2017, Paula signed away her rights to any of Randy's estate. It was I think at like $900,000 because um, money had come from a car insurance settlement. And because she signed that away, uh, Vicky was actually the person who, like the beneficiary. She was the one to receive the money. And um, I did read the obituaries for Robert and Randy. And um, it does say in Randy's that... He was son to Robert and Vicky. Um, Vicky was listed in Robert's obituary as the love of his life. And it was um, like very, when you look into Randy's life and Randy's death, it's very clear that he considered Vicky his mother. Like there's no mention of Paula anywhere. She's not listed as surviving. Like she just doesn't exist. And I found this site um, and it, like, it had all of these, um, like, I don't know if they were forum comments or, like, blog things. I'm not sure. But the person who ran the site, like, went and vetted and um, found the email address of the user, which was, like, linked to Randy's school. So it had his name and his education, like, the educational institution's domain or whatever it's called. I don't know. I don't do computer stuff. 
I know, sorry, I'm not smart. Um, so like they confirmed that this had to have been him, but he was leaving stuff like very, very supportive of his father and very, uh, not, um, I don't know what the word I'm looking for is. Like, he basically was like, uh, she's where she deserves to be, Paula Sims. Like, I hope she rots in prison. Which, like, <sighs> um, not very christian thing to say, I feel like. I don't know. Do I disagree? No. <laughs> um, I just, I don't, like, you know, advertise myself as, like, this real christian person either so i don't know anyway it was just kind of interesting to um read these because he was very passionate in his um messages that he would leave and i've got the site bookmarked and i will um possibly put it in the show description for a link so you can read them too but there's like a lot of stuff to sift through but anyway the point of that is uh he pretty much was like yeah uh Paula's not my mom, screw her, and she can rot in prison, was what it comes down to. But his obituary read, I'm just going to kind of read you like a little section, uh, that he was a son to Robert and Vicki Sims, a member of Center Grove Presbyterian Church in Edwardsville, Illinois. He graduated from Greenville College and was a teacher at Collinsville Christian Academy and was an avid book collector. Randy enjoyed debating, trivia nights, and learning about history. He also enjoyed photography, traveling, playing darts, playing pool, and bowling. Randy loved life. He loved to laugh. But most of all, he loved his family. Um, and I saw somewhere else that for a few years, he worked at the Greenville Public Library. And he had this sign outside of his classroom that said, the smell of learning beckons you. Which I was like, I love that. Because it reminds me of books. Like, you know how books smell? I don't know. So it was nice that he worked in a library and he had that sign. It was a nice connection. Now, in the Woodland Hill Cemetery, a headstone stands that used to have, um, like, this banner that was um, the Sims. And it read, together, eternally in love. And then there was, like, two little hearts along the banner. And one said mom and one said dad. And it had Lorelai. Heather, Paula, and Robert, but now it shows Lorelai, Heather, Randall, and Robert, and the little heart that had the word mom is blank. It's just dad now. Uh, Randy and Robert have death dates on the headstone, but Lorelai and Heather don't. It Like, Lorelai does now have her name, like, it's marked there, but Lorelai and Heather only have um, the birth dates, I don't know how recent these photos were, but Randy and Robert died in 2015, so they aren't super old. I mean, maybe somebody has updated them since then, but I don't know. It just struck me as odd. Like, why have, have why has nobody put their death dates there? Now, in part one, I mentioned that the younger Paula was described by several people as not afraid to speak her mind and stand up for herself. Like, what happened to that version of Paula? You know, did that did that die along with Randy, her brother? Did Robert play a part in that change? Like, Paula hints as much in her jailhouse confession. Like, she says that the pressures of a controlling husband and an unrecognized mental illness drove her to madness and to kill her babies. So, maybe. 
On Thursday, October 28, 2021, after serving 30 years of her life sentence, the Illinois Prisoner Review Board voted 12 to 1 on granting Paula's release. And she was released from Logan Correctional Center around 3.30 p.m. on Friday, October 29th, 2021. So she's out. And she had hopes to move to Alabama and open up a dog grooming business. <laughs> so, if any of you are in Bama, I don't, maybe don't let her do the bathing. I'm not sure. Like, I... I'm all for like people change. It's been 30 years. You know, she was young. She had this controlling husband, according to her and some investigators, just by the rules and everything and friends of hers, testimony, things like that. But I personally would not take my dog to Paula Sims. That's all I'm going to say about that. Uh, here's what her attorney, Jed Stone, had to say on her release. Quote, I'm very grateful to Governor, uh, don't know how to say that, Pritzker sorry, for recognizing that postpartum psychosis is a serious mental illness that deserves the attention of the medical community and the legal community. He went on to say, Paula suffered from postpartum, excuse me, postpartum psychosis at the time of her crimes, and a sentence of life without parole for a person with mental illness is not justice. Now, prior to her approved release, Paula did explain and requests that her trial attorney, um, Don Groshong, did not look into a defense of postpartum psychosis syndrome. Like, she didn't even know anything about it until after she was convicted. But there was a woman um, named Kathleen Hamill, and she testified that all of the media about Heather's abduction kind of caught her attention because it was very similar to some other cases she had read about this condition. So she spoke to an attorney in Groshan's office and sent him this packet of like all these materials explaining that there could be a possible defense of postpartum psychosis syndrome. Um, and it can be detected by measuring hormone levels in the bloodstream. So she's like, you need to have Paula's blood tested ASAP. And then she later contacted the office and learned that he did receive the package, but he hadn't reviewed the materials yet. Um, so after Paula was charged, Kathleen sent like a follow-up letter and said, hey, test this blood, like test her blood. Um, but he didn't do that. Uh, so she was like, you know, I never really, I, he didn't do what he was supposed to do basically. Um, and I think she went up to the board like three times maybe before they granted her release, at least three, I think I read. Um, there was also a doctor named Diane Sanford who specialized in, um, like these kind of postpartum illnesses. Um, and she wrote a book about like disorders and anxiety and things like that. Um, and she said, cause she met Paula after she went to prison quote, once she went on medicine and really started to get better and since then has continued to have good mental health. So it was very unfortunate that she had these two psychotic experiences after each girl was born. Yeah, I'd say that's pretty unfortunate. And that's, that's it. That's where I'm going to leave you for your own thoughts and reading and looking into. Um, it's just very sad. And one of the things that struck me, I try not to be that person. Like, um, if you follow me on TikTok, like you might see in some of the videos, people are like, that's my birthday. And I'm like, uh, <laughs> okay. <laughs> I try to be kind, but, um, it's like a heinous murder story and they're like, oh my God, that was my birthday. And I'm like, ah, 
Um, but the day that she was sentenced was my own one of my kids' birthdays. And I was doing this episode thinking, I absolutely cannot imagine like being in the hospital with your child and it being 13 days later, six weeks later. Um, and of course, at any point in time, like it's it's awful at any point in time, but just so soon after the experience of bringing your child into the world, like it was just really kind of giving me perspective um, from like I was remembering my own time after I had my baby because that's my oldest child was born January 30th. And um, it's just sad. Like it's just sad. And if it is um, you know, if she really did have some type of psychotic break or she had postpartum psychosis or whatever, um, it's, it's hard. It's a hard thing to figure out, like, do you get punished for that? (laughs) Um, you know, this was in the eighties and it wasn't as freely discussed as it is now, like mental health with, it was, not, um, there was more stigma, I think. So, um, it, it's rough. Like if she really did have that, then okay. You know, she's spent 30 years for, um, something that was not in her control and nobody could help her with it. Nobody wanted to help her with it. But I think, um, I'm leaning toward more of, you're just, you found out about it. You learned about it and said, oh, that's the ticket. Um, again, I don't know because I'm not a mental health professional, but that's just my own personal opinion and I can have one of those. Um, but if she wasn't, like there was a state senator who said something to the effect of, I think her name was Rachel Crow or something like that, but she said something like, she's not taking responsibility for her actions. You know, she didn't show any remorse. So by her saying that she did this under postpartum psychosis she's like delegitimizing mothers who actually suffer from postpartum health issues and I was like yes that is how I feel too so anyway that's where I'm going to leave you now that I promise is the end of my rant um so whenever I get the Patreon episode going on I'm gonna try to do like one or two I have a few days off work so I'm gonna try to pop those in. Um, I'll let you know. There's a link to that in my Instagram, which is a pine for true crime, where you can go look at some pictures of Paula and Robert. Um, if you want to send me an email, let me know about any gentle clinic people or whatever you want to say. You can send that to a pine podcast at gmail.com. And as always, if you want to show appreciation um, in a quick, easy way, Apple podcast reviews are always super helpful. Um, you don't have to type any words. You can just click the stars, whatever you want to do. And I would appreciate it. Okay. 